Welcome to Startup Hand-Me-Downs, the podcast that passes insights from founders and thought leaders down to the next generation. The episode is with the CTO of Rent the Runway, who is Josh Builder. Um, If you guys don't know Rent the Runway, they're a killer startup. They're doing some amazing things at the moment. They just raised um, $60 million in their Series E round. Um, So congrats to those guys. Um, They're doing some truly amazing things within the dress rental space. Um, Their mission, in short, is to deliver the Cinderella experience by making luxury dresses available to all women. Um, So which means you can rent a pricey dress online for 24 hours and give it straight back. How cool is that? Um, I'm still waiting for them to release a male version of this because there are a few Tom Ford suits that I would like to try on but not necessarily buy. Um, So in this episode, we talk to Josh about why he's an engineer and how he became an engineer. You know, what was his first product? Um, Josh also had a startup which he sold to Sony. So he's really into like music and tech and fashion and that type of thing. Um, And then we talk a lot about Rent the Runway and why they've been so successful and what the future looks like for Rent the Runway. Um, And then Josh breaks down what a startup founder should really look for in a CTO in the early days. Um, It's a really, really cool episode. Um, Josh is such a great guy. Um, I actually got to record this one in person down at their very plush offices um, down Hudson Square. Um, So please, without further ado, have a listen to the show and enjoy. How are you doing, Josh? Good. Great to be here. Thanks for coming on the show. Um, so, Josh, I want to just you know delve right in and find out a little bit more about yourself, um, and then we can talk a little bit more about Rent the Runway. So, how did you initially get into programming? Um, it's funny. I, I think I, I grew up at a time when uh, there were, you know, I, I remember no computers, and then I remember computers, you know, coming around in my family when we got a computer and there was no internet. It was like this exalted thing that sat in a separate room called the computer room, which people <laughs> had in their houses. We had computer rooms, which is funny to even think about right now. And when we got our first computer, they like sat in this computer room. Um, it like seemed like something so interesting and something so special. And I would kind of like sneak into it, and it was you know it, it ran DOS, and you know you had to learn how to. Um, you know, like actually write command line stuff, and it just seemed like this like mysterious box mm. that I remember just being like a really young kid and and just getting into, and then um, you know from there it was like a natural progression into both I'd say like you know being the computer expert of like my family, my town. You know, I was like a very young kid, and I had like this. Uh, you know, I started this like little company that I guess like an whatever like a nine or ten year old can start where I would like fix my friend's parents computers wow um, which mostly were you know was just restarting them which it still is uh, yeah. the magic trick and then you know from there it was just like a natural progression into um, learning uh, you know learning how to program um, and then just like becoming comfortable with it uh, and then obviously the internet happened and mm. things, you know, things got That's a lot more exciting. But, you know, for me, it was something that was always, you know, it was always there from when I was a young child and always had this allure and uh, was always something that was very exciting. That's so interesting. So no one in your family was actually like techie. So to no, say. but then you got a computer because like that's what, you know, it was like a big yeah. thing that yeah. people were getting computers and... Um, you know, I of course wanted to play games, and you had to like load them in like you got like fifteen stacks of 
uh, floppy disks to load up like your floppy first... what? what <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, and I, you know, I sort of remember like you get to like disk ten and it would like error out and you'd have to like restart loading the whole game. Um, and so like I, you know, I think my parents both got it because uh, it, it seemed like the right thing to do at the time, and, sure. and also like it was something to keep me, you know, that I was like interested in and to keep me occupied. That's so funny. I mean, I remember I was, I was telling my little sister the other day when we used to have the internet in the house and we had a modem and a wire. She yeah. like looks so offended. She's like, wires? Yeah. Right. Internet? Yeah, yeah, She's exactly. like, what's that? Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, it's interesting. I, you know, like, I, I know that, that, that intro just made me come up and sound like an 85-year-old man. I'm not even that old. But I feel like, you know, at, 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 in my, there's like this particular, I don't even know if it's a year or like two years where, you know, it's not even a generation, but like I am of this particular moment in time where I there were no computers, then I then there were computers, then there was the internet. So like I sort of I remember being a kid like right before that, and mm. I remember being a kid after it. Yeah. You know, I started college. Um, I actually I went to Carnegie Mellon, and we were the first campus in America to have wireless internet. Wow, right? like huge freaking deal! Like they yeah. gave you a wireless card, yeah. and it was a big deal. So like I remember what it was like before that. And then there was no social media in college, right? But then, like, right when I graduated, like, all of that stuff happened. So I, but I was so I was young enough to experience it. So I have this like perspective of like life without it, but also know a life where I can't live sure. without it yeah. um, at the same time. So it's a it's a it's a very weird space to occupy. I think yeah. like my little cohort is the occupying this bubble in time. That, yeah. You know. And I guess what was like the first product you built? Um, Ever did you build at college? Was it something that you built at home? Yeah, uh, product is a big word to even use for it. I mean, <laughs> I think the first thing I probably built was like a website that had a bunch of. I mean, there were no blogs or anything. It was just like a website with some images and text that was essentially a public diary um, that I would have to like create the content for share it with my friends and then I would just like erase it the next day and like put something new that was probably the first thing that's I like the first done. snapchat yeah <laughs> <laughs> so I'm you super into secrecy is like uh, a 13 year old I see I see um, cause there was no like backing it up I think it was like a tripod site uh, just HTML it was like you know yeah. just super super basic super basic cause there was, I wouldn't call it a product I mean you know in my you know in my career or even in college I think the first like real product I ever built that was like could be you know construed as like a system in any way was uh, something to run uh, an animal shelter in, uh, in okay. Pittsburgh where I went to college we built a me and a partner built something for you know nonprofit animal shelters to help them uh, you know catalog their uh, you know their animals know who their own you know who the potential owners were like sure. run their the basics of their business it was mm-hmm. just like a really 1.0 um, online platform for them that would probably be the first real product. product legitimate product yeah. okay so fast forward a few years you join a startup called The Orchard uh-huh. so talk to me a little bit about The Orchard because you guys actually sold to Sony Music yeah so talk to me about that whole experience so, so you know it, it sort of starts a little bit before The Orchard I um you know, coming out of college and, and, and coming to New York, I uh, got a job working in the, in the wireless business and I worked, I interned as an engineer for T-Mobile. Singular and then T-Mobile and then I ended up working for T-Mobile and building some computer, you know, some systems for T-Mobile, which are, were super interesting and sort of still are super interesting, but kind of boring. And all the while, all I wanted to do was work in the music industry, like so badly, 
in college, like my whole life, I wanted to work in the music Why? industry. Um, good question. I, you know, <laughs> I've been since as long as I can remember. I'm a, uh, a a vicious record collector in in a way that my wife thinks is very unhealthy, um, and so did my parents. And so, like, while never a musician at all, um, I was always into um, record collecting and listening to music. But I approached it, I think, as like an engineer would, like from like with like a taxonomy and that like any band that I was into, I was into um, what bands that they were inspired them, what albums they listened to, and I would sort of like explore this whole universe and create it around like a band I was interested in and then collect around those bands. Um, And so I uh, met some other people or some friends of mine from college actually, uh, and we had a, you know, it's funny, I think in that point in New York, they weren't even called startups. It was just like, we started a small business um, (laughs) as a side hustle to all of our day jobs, which was uh, a company called looserecord.com that, uh, and we built all the software from scratch, which was essentially like a blog and a content management system, but like before Blogger and and any of that stuff, we had to like build it all. And we had writers and photographers in six cities across the country, and we Mm -hmm. were like on the phones with the venues and getting them... um, linked up for free free passes and they would in turn create content for us they would write a review of the show that they had just seen they would take photos of the show that they would just see they would feed it all into our content management system we would edit it and put it out and so we were like reviewing live music in six cities sure um and a natural we got a ton of great relationships with radio stations with venues with bands and a natural evolution of that um was a record label and so we started a record label um to work on work with a number of the bands that we were you know getting exposed to and this was right around the time where um it was like mp3.com and itunes was just starting and a record label was going through an identity crisis around you know what 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 service did it provide to the artists was it the the management of the physical reproductions Mm -hmm. of of all of that, or was it the actual like digital existence and getting stuff on iTunes? And so it was this turning point, and we as a record label um, called North Street Records um, sort of straddled both both worlds. And at that point, we got picked up for distribution by a company called The Orchard, which is a, and again, you're probably a very, very small company in New York that had the idea of, that was actually started by a songwriter named Richard Goddard, who wrote My Boyfriend's Back, uh, I Want Candy. He founded Sire Records. He was this great music industry guy who had this like kooky vision to get people's digital rights because he thought that that would be the future, which obviously now sounds, is, is, yeah. doesn't sound like a controversial yeah. thing <laughs> at, at all, but, but it certainly was at a time because there was no money to be made from that. Sure. And so he started this, um, this company and I had the, you know, I got, they approached me for my record label and I was like, I actually, yes, but I want to come work for you guys. Oh, so you um, guys were like acquired. So we were like, I mean, acquired is a, is a big word. It's for, a big word. You know, for yeah. that particular moment in time. It's really Did they buy funny. you for money? Y- yes. They, they, they bought us for the promise of, uh, of, of, of digital. Or they, rather, they licensed our digital content for right. a very long time for the promise of, uh, of money. Okay. Um, it's a pain it forward. Yeah. It's a, it's a, <laughs> um, and so... I jumped right in and was, you know, one of the, you know, the first major employees uh, at a company. And I came in to find uh, the Orchard was actually at the time more of a marketing engine mm-hmm. and had outsourced all technology 
um, to a number of companies because you know the world you said the digital ecosystem around um, music was changing certainly independent content was changing and it was changing very fast right. and there was not a lot of options and not a lot of expertise and so I came in to just sort of take it in-house um, and you know, work with the the founders and the board on trying to make this a real technology company. How big was the company when you joined? I think I was the, I don't exactly remember, maybe like the 10th employee. Okay. Somewhere around So still early. Yeah, it was very early. Um, and from that point forward, uh, it was a very quick switch in terms of technology as an enabler to what the vision was, to technology being the focus of the of the of the company and i think that was uh, very much you know part of our thought process and also a reaction to the world that was changing i mean every day that went by in you know uh 2005 uh digital it was consumption of, of any content was switching was switching more and more to digital so it was like a very obvious transition for this company to, to, to focus on it and i had the you know the privilege of spending essentially 10 years at the orchard yeah. um, from that point forward um, to you know when we sold the business to Sony Music uh, recently, we had offices in 26 countries. Wow. Uh, we had um, taken, we had gone public, we had gone private. We had um, acquired a number of our competitors. We had built a tremendous amount of technology to um, change the way people interacted with uh, content and also change the way that they got their content out in the world. Um, we started with music, we moved to, uh, to film and television and wow. eventually YouTube and really had this platform where if you created a piece of content, um, you could engage with us and we would quarterback your whole, your whole existence. And what we really built for it was not like dude in a basement who made a record, but um, really like if you wanted to be in the business of content and were interested in putting bands on tour and collecting from foreign agencies to figuring out what ads to buy and when to reacting to data around your iTunes playlist or your Spotify playlist right. in real time and and making changes, figuring out what content's doing well and what not's doing well. So we ended up this platform ended up being like a real mainline into the, the the changing digital ecosystem at the time. And and it was every day was a new set of challenges. Every yeah. day was the industry was changing. Um, every day there were new things that uh, to do and we really um, stayed on the forefront of it and it was um, it was fantastic yeah no, it sounds like a fun ride um, I wanted to ask who well you did answer it but your target audience how did you find them how did you gain traction you know you can't you know you went from 10 people to 26 officers like how did yeah. that um, you know, I, I think, and it's particular, I, I think, at the time to the music industry, um, being a, uh, I don't want to say rather insular, but um, being very reputation driven. And I think early on, you know, as the company progressed, the bigger reputation we had and the easier it was to uh, acquire customers. Right. Um, and I think we always went about it organically. Um, we went about uh, went about went about things organically a lot in terms of the, the company growth and the way we acquired customers. Um, even the technology we built was a very iterative, logical process. Um, and the more we did, the more traction we got. Um, and at the time, with things changing, the more customers actually meant um, 
more data, more distribution outlets, more things we had to build. So it, you know, we, we hit this critical mass where we were onboarding clients and we were in this nice cadence of just, just building enough to keep up to with keep them. Up. So we really yeah. didn't, and our reputation kept growing, so we really didn't have to, um, Necessarily you know, acquire acquire customers in, in in the way you're. Yeah, I think that's that. you know, and then I think that's you know how the media industry works to a certain degree. No, that makes sense. And as you guys were growing, were you bootstrapping? Did you raise money? Um, were you doing? Did you have a, like a high MRR? MRR? Yes, yeah, so it's a, you know, it, it, it's a really good question. So the answer is, um, we were bootstrapping and we raised a little bit of money. Um, you know, our, our, our board and, and our initial private equity investor actually was our uh, main investor and stayed with us in, in, until the sale. Mm-hmm. Um, we raised money from them in the beginning, but we were not in the, um, you know, the, the series A, B, C, D right. sort of, you know, sort of round. And I, and I learned a tremendous amount um, of how to run a business and the basics and the fundamentals around it. Right. You know, in school and on my own, I learned how to like write code and be an engineer and, and learn about technology. You know, what I learned there at the Orchard was like how to really grow a business and what are the different levers for um, success and health. And so, you know, I say that because I mean, like, we didn't really, we raised that initial round and then we grew organically, we leveraged our balance sheet, we were yeah. very smart and calculating yeah. about um, what to do when. Um, when we got in positions where we could self-fund growth, we took those opportunities, but we never bit off more than, than we could chew. And we actually you know, grew the business without significant um, fundraise from that, from that point forward. And so while it's very temp- you know, it was very tempting to raise money to try to go uh, do things quick, you know, quicker. Uh, I learned a tremendous amount from, you know, from the the people I got to work with around what it takes to use your own balance sheet to grow your own business. Yeah. And I think that is, um, it's not something I would have come to naturally. And I think in this day and age where, you know, it, it's become so easy to raise money or yeah. it becomes, it feels like a natural progression and sometimes right. it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, Having in your back pocket like the, the, the way to grow a business organically um, and feel what that's like uh, is something I'm very grateful for as an opportunity because I don't think I would have come to that on my own. Yeah, I think a lot of startups now think raising money is like part of the journey. Yeah. Like you have to do it. Yeah. And raising money becomes like a, like a real focus point for yeah. most people. And it, it's, it's a badge of honor. Yeah. You know, sometimes. And I don't think it should be. I mean, exactly. Give it away a piece of your company. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and, um, Maybe decent terms, maybe not. Yeah. Um, and you have uh, a bunch of other perspectives in the room. Yeah. Um, and you know, depending on the, the terms of your raise. Detracting away from the original vision. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, um, we were fortunate to be in such a healthy position that when we did look to acquire a competitor or a, or a complementary partner or something at the orchard, um, we didn't have to go ask permission. I mean, we, we, you know, we had our, you know, outside of our initial core group um, we could you know control our own destiny and make our own decisions and um, weren't beholden to various terms of various different raises and partners and and all the stuff that comes with uh, sort of the modern the modern capital yes and what would you say were the biggest struggles in the early days Um, you know I think there was a tension and I think it was a healthy tension between uh, wanting to grow faster and do more and and establishing, you know, 
business basics and fundamentals and a, and a drive towards we can do whatever we want so long as like the financials of our business are healthy. Um, and I think as a, um, as a technologist, I always wanted to, you know, do more faster, yeah. <laughs> stronger, yeah. uh, and hire more people faster and just do all those things. And, um, it's not like I was, didn't get to do it, but it was just more of like, I had to put more rigor behind building a new product right. as the CTO. I had to put more, uh, rigor and thought behind building something new than if we had just raised money and just were like looking to looking to, to spend grow exponentially, which you know was a healthy tension. Yeah, not a bad place to be in. So fast forward a few years, you're at Rent the Runway now. Mm-hmm. Can you describe to the audience who you guys are and what you guys do? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we are a, um, you know, from my perspective. Uh, we are a fashion company with a technology soul. Uh, to other people's perspective, we are, nice. uh, you know, that, that can be reversed. But you know, we are a, a fashion rental company for women. And um, the, the, the basic way Rent the Runway works is instead of going out and spending a lot of money and buying something, you come on our site uh, and you browse a tremendous uh, inventory uh, and pick something for your occasion, whatever it might be, mm-hmm. and uh, it gets delivered to your door, and you wear it, uh, and you put it back in its bag, and you send it back to us. And from your perspective, uh, it's cheaper, it's awesome, uh, it's super convenient, and you don't have to think about um, any of the logistics behind making that happen. Um, you know, I, in the early days of Rent the Runway, I think it, it was mainly focused on e-commerce and um, really simulating that experience of instead of buying something, um, you should rent it, and that has been uh, fantastic. And you know, I think as the world's changed, so have we've started to look at a much broader opportunity around changing the way you get dressed fundamentally. Yeah. Um, and leveraging our infrastructure and our technology and our relationships um, and our perspective in the in the fashion industry to allow you to you know have rental be more of a regular behavior in your life than just renting for this thing or that thing Mm -hmm. Um, and you know really again looking at changing the way you get dressed you know we offer now subscriptions to fashion um, and various different programs that are geared towards making this you know much more of a part of your everyday life than I think when we started sure Uh, so music to fashion yeah how did (laughs) did that come about what attracted you to run Um, you know I, I I think what attracted me to, to both of those things um, was the the technology problems behind it. I, I think, um, you know, specifically at Rent the Runway, uh, you know, I, I this really what feels like a really natural behavior that didn't exist before only exists because of technology. Right. Um, and the the I really like when. There's a simple something very simple to the to the consumer that is very complicated on the back end. I think those are the those are some of the, the more more fun challenges when um, there's just a ton of like back end really complicated work and what what it spits out of the end is just a really natural, hopefully seamless, um, simple experience to the user. And I don't think um, there's much wrong with them with you know you not thinking about what goes into getting that to you, but really just this is you know this is. A service that you can come to express. I think, you know, in our 
life. There's, you know, there's all kinds of, you know, there's, you know, there's companies changing the way you eat. There's obviously companies changing the way you get um, from one place to another. And yeah. getting the way we get dressed every day is a really um, important part of our lives. And, and I think, um, you know, we have an opportunity and, and have been fundamentally changing that for women. So how integral, if you could break this down, is the technology to what you guys do? And what kind of like problems have you been solving? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it is as integral as it could be. Um, I, I don't think this this I don't think this business doesn't exist at any scale without um, technology and logistics. Right. Um, oh, and logistics must be huge. Yeah, yeah the, logistic, the, the logistics are huge. You know, we care very much about um, getting something back from you. Yeah. Right? As much <laughs> as we care about getting it to you, we care about getting it back. From yeah. Um, and that is a a uh, really fascinating, interesting problem that uh, a lot of people haven't thought about before Rent the Runway. And I mm. think we've thought about that um, in a very human way because the thing that we're trying to get back to you is something that um, people have an emotional connection to. Yeah. Uh, and it's an important part of their lives. It's not just a, a box or a widget or a return or something. It's it's um, something that you've just worn or are going to wear for, you know, uh, for a moment in your life. And so, it's as integral as it could be. Um, I, I think that it could, you know, as we grow and as we look towards the future, um, the potential of what we can do here um, is limited by the technology we can build and the ways in which we can think about it. Right. Um, you know, there's a tremendous amount we want to do, um, but because it's so integral, like, you know, we have to make it work and we have to make it feel uh, great, you know, we call it a Cinderella experience here. Everybody deserves a Cinderella experience, and there's a lot that goes into that. And so, right. as long as we can keep evolving that, um, the way we do that is with technology. I get it. So, Cinderella, so you come to the house, you put the dress on the person, and you take it off <laughs> yeah, yeah, at yeah. midnight. You know, yeah, and I, I think that you know, as you know. We think about how technology factors into that Cinderella experience. You know, when the company started out, it was very much for these, you know, how you would classically imagine it for like an event or yeah. something with big stakes. But, yeah. you know, as we've grown and been able to grow our technology and the things we do, um, that what defines a Cinderella experience is changing. Like it, yeah. it, it could be a Tuesday night yeah. or a Tuesday afternoon. Like mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be a high stakes thing. Like, that you know everybody deserving that Cinderella experience can, can happen seven days a week and I yeah. think that's you know technology can get us there yeah be Cinderella every day yeah exactly. um, so how because tech is so integral to the company is the whole tech team in house and how big is your team yeah so the whole tech team is in house and I think you know you, you said it because tech is so in integral to the company and, and you know from my perspective um, it's as much to you know have people working together as it is to have people thinking together. Right. Um, especially because we are trying to solve problems that haven't that there isn't really a, a roadmap to, and and having a collaborative, um, growing team is um, is super important. You know, the, in terms of the team size, I think it's like any you know any company at our stage where it's like we're we're growing. I mean, you know, we're we're, we're growing fast, and I think. As the team has gotten bigger, you know we've we've taken on more, and our operation has gotten bigger. And so uh, I think we face um, the challenge that a lot of companies in New York City do, which is you know we've also gotten pickier about who um, who comes onto the team. Um, so it's not just about the size; it's very much about the 
the caliber of engineering talent, the caliber of product right. talent, design talent that we um, that we bring on. So in terms of um, growing the team to 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 you know handle our appetite for tackling problems, it's it's as much about the people as it is the numbers. Right. It's more about the people. Than and are you still quite hands-on with the tech? Um, I wish I was. Uh, <laughs> it's funny, you know, I, I, somebody here asked me, they were like, what did you, now that you've been here, you know, what's the, your, been your biggest surprise? And I was like, well, I took this job because I was really interested in getting back to being hands-on and more technical. And um, I think um, I have not had the ability to do that um, from an actual hands-on coding standpoint. But um, from a you know from a higher level architectural standpoint, yeah, um, very much so. Um, I think you know the role of CTO and, and, and you know for your listeners that are at various stages, I think is a very interesting one yeah. in the executive suite because it, in my opinion, its job fu- its job function changes out like a hundred percent, like seven or eight times as a company yeah. grows, whereas. Mm-hmm. Um, other roles you need to acquire new skills and grow but like it's still sort of the same job just you know um, just growing where this becomes uh, you know a number of different jobs and I think you know wanting to be hands-on is something I really like to do but at a company of this stage you know my I look at my job as getting great people and and creating great space for them to work in right um, and that is a way more productive use of my time than uh, than than writing code at the moment. Sure. And also, it, you know, in a stack like Red the Runways, where it's we, we have a ton of operational and logistical technology, we have consumer facing technology, we have you know all the things that make um, what Red the Runway is. I mean, my particular you know skill set and what I enjoy is just one one thing in, in what is a you know a big. Uh, a, a, a big array of um, technology talent we need here at Rent right. Runway, um, and so I focus most of my time on on growing that team. You know, making sure we build the right architecture for now and for the future, mm-hmm. um, and giving people space. And that's a long-winded answer to the, yeah. <laughs> which I was hands-on to a certain degree, and I and I certainly dabble on my own. But that's a uh, uh, I don't think right now that that is part the of what the of CTO time. job is right. for a company like Rentero. We're going to get on to like what a good CTO should be doing, um, but that's a bit later on. Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess, RTR, what, is, what have been, I guess, the biggest issues and how have you guys like solved that problem? Yeah. I, I guess I from think, a technical perspective. Yeah, I, I think the, the technology around the operation has right. been, um, you know, one of our biggest challenges, I don't say issue, but it's been the thing that as we've grown um, in terms of users, as we've grown in terms of like inventory, as we've yeah. grown in terms of like diversity of inventory, as we've just like grown the business, that is the number one technology challenge that, um, you know, we need to grow the operation and the technology alongside with it. We build all of it in-house for that reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, from my perspective, the biggest challenge is when those opportunities come is building for the the current future that we want, but also, you know, future-proofing them and building for the rent the runway that we're trying to be in X amount of years and making sure we don't um, have an architecture that's, uh, you know, that we like stub our toes on later. Yeah. Um, and so I think nowhere is that more evident than in the than in the operation. Right. But because of the nature of our business and, and the real-time aspects of 
um, clothing rental, the architecture of, of, of the front end and the way that the site and the app work, it needs to actually be completely aware of all of those bigger challenges. So right. it's, not, uh, it's not a disconnect. So it's really, you know, also making sure that that goes in lockstep and, and moves forward in lockstep with uh, a changing, you know, operational and logistical, or a growing operational and logistical um, set of challenges. Right. And um, before we, we started recording, we spoke about uh, marketing and acquisition, right? Um, so you said Rent the Runway have grown organically for many years. Yeah. How? <laughs> I, think, I think they're uh, word of mouth. Word of mouth. Um, I mean, you know, a good old-fashioned word of mouth. I think um, in the beginning of Rent the Runway, there was a lot of talk about when people do this. Like, is this is rental of behavior that yeah. uh, people would even do, right? And what we found early on is like, yeah, absolutely, right? I mean, I'm sitting here talking to you today, but not only will they do it, but but like they're proud of it and they love to talk about it. And um, I think that has been for the large, for the history of the business, uh, responsible for a lot of the acquisition, you know, the acquisition, as you would say, and growth of the company is just, you know, people like to talk about that Cinderella experience. And the, you know, we've put a lot of time and effort in, you know, making the experience great and encouraging people to talk about it. Right. Uh, and I think that has been our foundational strategy. Uh, you know, yes, now, like, obviously, as the company's grown, you know, we're, we're uh, dabbling in other spaces. But um, first and foremost, still to this day, it is that, that word of mouth, reputation, right. and, and people talking about it. That is um, how we've grown. Did you talk about the? Could you talk about the other spaces that you guys are dabbling in? The yeah, I, I mean, in terms of you know, uh, you know, the, the, you know, on Instagram and, and social media and, right. and Facebook and. But you, you guys know. have a huge Instagram account. Yeah. A social. Account. Um, and I think you know that has been a, a natural extension that mm-hmm. I, of of the, um, you know, of the of the word of mouth and the, right. and the way people are referred. I think that's been an outgrowth of it, not yeah. something that uh, that spurs it. And I think you know. Um, we brought on great people who are, you know, who, who know a lot more about that space than I do that are um, thinking about how to make that a part of growth and mm-hmm. while still being true to, to the, the, you know, the, the word of mouth and the way that people talk about us because I think that's, you know, that's where we, we want that to continue. Right. And you guys recently done a partnership with Neymar Marcus. Is it Neymar Marcus? Neymar Marcus. Neymar Marcus. Yeah. Yes. Sorry. Um, are we going to see? It sounds more? better when you say it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I doubt it. Um, are we going to see more kind of strategic partnerships happening over the years? Is that part of your growth strategy? I guess. Um, I, I don't. I wouldn't say it's formally part of our strategy. I think that it, when the opportunity presents itself, right. um, and if it's the right opportunity for us, we're absolutely open to it. Sure. Um, you know, we're we're not pounding the pavement for it. And I think, especially with the Neiman Marcus partnership, there's. Uh, a tremendous amount that we've done with them and there's still a tremendous amount we, we can do so sure. um, you know and, and will do and want to do and so I think there's uh, just a lot of work to do there I think it's a great example of the types of ways that um, what Rent the Runway does and rental behavior can fit in with a more traditional uh, industry and a more traditional way of, uh, of buying clothes um, and I think and lay up nicely alongside it um, physically, actually, I, I think the, the Neiman Marcus partnership is just a, a great example of that for us. That you know, 
Um, we very much think of, you know, there is a future where you buy some, you have really nice things, and then the rest of your closet is on rotation. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think, you know, moving in that direction, anything we can do to move the thought in that direction is important. Great, excellent. So I guess in the more general sense, speaking of a CTO, startup, so the majority of our audience are startup mm-hmm. founders really early in their career. How would you advise a non-technical startup founder to look for a CTO, what should they be looking for? Um, you know, as unfortunately the answer is it depends, <laughs> uh, which is not uh, you know the, the the one-liner I'm sure the audience is looking for. I mean, it depends a lot on what the type of product is, right. um, and and how um, technical you need it to be right off the bat, and mm-hmm. how much you need a proof of concept to just acquire them, you know, to make a market and how much like the actual product itself is, sure. um, you know, technology driven. And so I think that is a uh, big part of what obviously you should look for in the, in the technical co-founder skills. Sure. Um, and I, you know, and I say that I said it earlier about like the job changing out multiple times. I think in that first iteration mm-hmm. of, you know, looking for a technical co-founder in a, you know, a team of maybe two or three or four, a very yeah. small team, um, you know, your CTO is the best engineer, like should be the best engineer mm-hmm. and absolutely needs to add value and be able to, uh, you know, write code and build a product and, and, and inform all kinds of things. And I think overemphasizing on that skill set is very important, but it depends on what you're trying to do because very quickly, um, you know, your CTO could be out with you helping raise money. Yeah. Um, I mean, they, all of a sudden there's things that like, you know, they could, you know, they end up a lot of times in the early stages like overseeing product as well. And yeah. so, you know, I think very quickly you can find yourself with that same person um, who might be the best engineer trying to pull them in directions that aren't, you know, writing code all day long. Yeah. And that might might be the right thing for you. So um, if that's the case and you think you're going to get to that position sooner, um, you know, I would, you know, and you're, and you have that in your head as you're looking for a partner, you know, life skills and communication yeah. and, you know, the ability but, to share in your vision yeah. and talk about it and be passionate about it and be curious about it, I think are traits that you want to look for right off the bat. If you're, if you think that that is the type of partner you need, but if you're like, I want you to like forever and ever build the product <laughs> uh, and sit and sit there and, and, and recruit with, the, you know, with your headphones on and yeah, I, mean, I don't want to speak to uh, you you know, but like, you know I, I think what, what happens oftentimes is startups grow past that first phase right. is they've optimized for a partner who, who fits phase one and not and, and haven't really thought about what they might need for right. a partner or a, a technical co-founder in phase uh, in phase two, two three, three or, or whatever and so all of a sudden you're pulling someone away from something that they actually want to do and they look at the other stuff uh, as maybe more mature um, as you know you hire and you grow all of a sudden your CTO is managing people mm-hmm. um, hopefully if you know things are going successful and you're growing right. a team and spending time in what should be spending time in one-on-ones developing code review process um, you know things that are again crucial to the growth of the business but like may not be the job, the best job for your best engineer. Sure. Um, or may not be the use of that person's time. And I think, you know, as a company grows and as, you know, if your vision for your company isn't single focus, isn't one particular app around a very, you know, sort of uh, feature set that you just need to get to 
and then everything will be great. If you have a broad, wide vision that is going that you know is going to be evolving, yeah. I think you're picking a different technical co-founder than if you're building that app that um, you know you already have the vision completely laid on your head. And as a founder, if you can just get it and deliver the product, then you can take it to market and, and yeah. you know do all the other stuff. Then uh, it's very different than if you need a co-pilot to like think to solve a big problem. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of startups now are just looking for an engineer. Yes, absolutely. And they just are looking for anyone who can code. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I don't think they think about it as much as you just explained and, just now. And, and I think the onus is on, you know, it's also reversing it. And I, I think the onus is on engineers to just actually be like, I do want to come on. I'm super interested in your idea. I don't want to be the CTO. I'm interested in being like an absolutely amazing individual contributor or, or, or building a team around that. But like these other things, like I'm not interested in. Right. Those. And like having, an, you know, trying to have an honest conversation with that to the extent that you can uh, up front is important. But again, the reason I started with it depends it depends on what you're trying to build. Right. Um, and it depends on what you're, you know, the problem you're trying to solve and how you want to disrupt it. No, that's good. That's good advice. Um, so just to, we're wrapping up now. In terms of a bit more general questions, what books, I know we spoke right, before, you don't necessarily read the business books, which is great, but yeah. what books would you recommend to... Um, I'm not necessarily a fan of business books. And maybe that's because I, <laughs> I, you know, I think one thing I absolutely took away from The Orchard was, you know, I got, uh, I didn't have to go to business school because I, I, I learned, you know, I, I got that from, yeah. you know, 10 years of learn by doing. Going, going through all those. Right. Is, and I really, to your point, what you said about learn by doing, I, I've come to a really profound appreciation of the learn by doing. And I think it's important that when you give people challenges, myself included, that you highlight like that this challenge is not just something for you to accomplish, but you know, if you do this and you think about it the right way, you're gonna learn by doing these these four things. Right. And I think um, it's very hard to get that from a book. And I also think most business books are like 10 pages of thesis. You know, the rest of it are just like- Examples. <laughs> yeah. um, so you asked me what books I read and I, you know, and, and I was thinking about it. For me, uh, I've been uh, very interested in uh, Tibetan Buddhist meditation practice. And so I've spent a lot of my time um, the last many years reading books on on that. Um, and I think it actually, you know, two you know, co-founders and CTOs, it's, it's very interesting because it's, it's actually like a vast computer program and framework for right. how to understand your own mind and how you think and feel about things. And I think... Um, in reading about that and in practicing it, it has made me, it has changed the way I relate to my career and my identity and the things I want to accomplish or, and how I want to accomplish certain things and why and has given me a little bit of uh, self-awareness where I didn't have it yeah. um, and the ability to have tools to try to work on that self-awareness and put a little bit of distance and not take things personally. Sure. Um, I still do take yeah. things personally and yeah. you know, all of that, but it's just... It's been it's been the only thing that I've found is a real, real profound, interesting toolkit for cutting to the root of uh, a lot of the things that you know trip us up uh, in life and in you know and in work. You sound like you're a fan of stoicism. Yeah, <laughs> so. Yeah, likewise. Yeah. <laughs> um, it is helps. There, yeah, it does. Is there a particular book that you'd recommend based on um, meditations? There one. Depends on how you'd like to you know you'd like to get into it. I think. Um, if you're interested in sort of a uh, um, you know Tibetan flavor to a meditation practice in life, I think the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying is a is a great start. Um, if not, and it's actually not in the Tibetan tradition of meditation, it's in the Zen tradition. There's a fantastic book called Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, 
um, by Suzuki Roshi that I would recommend. Um, that is, uh, it's not even a narrative, it, I think it's 20 short talks that he gave live that are just transcribed. And um, there are, they focus on, on very interesting topics that are um, very mundane um, and presented in uh, ways that are, that, that just in reading a short talk, like challenge immediately the way you uh, think about the world, think about your interpersonal interactions. Uh, and things of that nature, and it's a it's a fantastic, quick, general read that um, I think is worth its weight in gold. Cool. Um, if there was a bellboard sign, the biggest bellboard sign in the whole of New York, and you could put an advert on it, what would it say, and why? Like advertising for something, or for yourself, just, just anything. I could just use that space. Um, <laughs> It doesn't have to be a rent for the month. I would just say, relax and don't think, don't take things too personally. Cool. Uh, biggest inspirations? Um, my parents. I think that's, uh, you know, they, you know, my parents are the are, are, are the children of immigrants, and they were the first, uh, you know, people in their various generations, or certainly my father's side, to go to college. And I, I think watching the way that they, the way they thought about work, um, and the way they thought about career, they think about career and work um, as a point of pride and identity and a journey, um, I think, has helped me, you know, frame what I view as success and that um, a lot of this is about enjoying the ride more than it is about some goal or destination. And I think, I, you know, uh, I learned that by, 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 you know, watching them. That's awesome. Um, and finally, some advice for startups, you know, three guys in a room trying to build this thing. What advice do you have for these guys? Um, try to bootstrap it. <laughs> Yeah. As, as long as you can. Yeah. Uh, you know, don't don't necessarily you know uh, question whether you need to raise money or not. Doesn't mean you shouldn't, but but I think a healthy skepticism towards if you do is is just an important part of the thought process. Yeah. And you know, act short term, but think long term. Um, I think you know you have to spend a lot of time out in the future trying to think of the problems that will come your way because. You know, especially at a startup stage where you have this amazing opportunity to build something that doesn't exist mm -hmm. from scratch. Um, certainly from a technology standpoint, you have no tech debt. Mm -hmm. You know, it is something that is it's clean and pristine. And all you have to do is think about what you want to be. Um, and again, mostly from a technology standpoint. And if you just design your data structures a certain way, that, like, that keeps you open for the future that in uh, two years from now, um, you won't be, you know, you won't be... Pigeonhole. So I think, you know, there's some really, by thinking about the future, there's some really short-term actions um, from a technology standpoint that you can take without tech debt to really just keep your future open. Um, and I think a lot of times with founders and startups, there's there obviously is a, a, a really necessary drive to get things out quickly, um, which is great, but, you know, you just have such an opportunity to save yourself time in the future by a little bit of, of forethought, a tiny bit of extra work. So it's worth it. Minimal lovable product as opposed to a minimal viable product. <laughs> yeah, minimal viable product, I think a lot is uh, around what you need to release, right? Like don't cram too many features into it. Um, you know, 
uh, I think a lot of times that, you know, you're talking about a product, yeah. right? And so I'm talking about something slightly differently, which is that from, again, from the, you know, minimal value product, of course, right? There's no reason to cram something filled with things that you or your, your audience isn't ready for. You're not ready to build. They're done shitty, but, you know, yeah. uh, all of that. I'm talking about just like in the early stages of a startup when you're designing the technology from scratch, having nothing to do with the external facing product, there are some decisions that may take you a slightly amount of extra time to do, but save your ass yeah. um, down the line. That might not have ramifications on the product for, I don't know, two years or, or mm-hmm. some amount of time uh, down the line that you'd be, you, you, you'd be happy uh, to have known that you did yeah. back in the day. Great. Well, that was really good, really useful. Thank Great, you so thank much you. for coming on the show. Again, I just want to say another massive thank you to Josh Builder and the guys down at Rent the Runway for having me over. In terms of key takeaways from this show, the three things that stood out to me were, um, number one, the CTO role. Now, as a startup founder who's non-technical, it's so important for you to define what you want from your CTO. Some of you guys just want to get a product built so you can get it out and go from there. Some of you are thinking a lot more long-term. So you need to find the right person who you can see helping you through the MVP all the way up to, you know, version two, three, four, five. So your CTO needs to be able to evolve as the company evolves. Do you see this person as a leader? Do you see this person heading up the engineering division? You know, these are really tough questions that you might need to ask yourself, especially when you just want to get your product out the door, but um, it will definitely pay off in the long run. Um, The second thing that stood out to me was Josh spoke about Rent the Runway's growth and how it's been so organic. Um, And what I took from that was the fact that they were solving a real problem. You know, it's so important to build something that people actually want. Even if you think it's just like one person, like build something for one person in mind, because the chances are they know someone else who's just like them. And that's how you grow through word of mouth. And no matter how big your social media account is or how much money you have, ultimately, it's going to be the word of mouth that will always trump any kind of strategy. Um, Another thing that stood out to me, the third and final thing was, Josh said he doesn't actually read any business books. He learns by doing. And I think that's so important because ultimately, people are going to judge you on your work, not what you read. Um, So for me, my advice to those listening is... If, you know, reading books like Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill or The Lean Startup doesn't sit well with you or it's quite taxing to read, then just don't read it, you know, go out. If you're more practical, go out and build something and be more hands on and learn by failing, because ultimately we're all going to learn by failing anyway. Um, I hope this show episode brought you a lot of value. Um, If it did, please subscribe, um, leave a comment and follow us on social media at Startup Hand Me Downs, all one word. Um, And thanks for tuning in, guys.